open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we are going to study the first 12 verses together. This is the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day's journey away. There are three events which get a lot of three events in the life of Jesus that get a lot of publicity. His birth, his death, and his resurrection. And in many countries and in many church traditions, each of those have been granted a holiday. So there's Christmas, Good Friday, and then there's Easter. And if you go to a Hallmark store and you search for a card for those holidays, you would find one for each of them. But when was the last time that you saw an Ascension card? Generally speaking, in in most Presbyterian churches, we don't have any traditions surrounding Ascension Day. At Christmas, we greet one another with Merry Christmas. Um, But what do you say on Ascension Day? Merry Ascension Day? Happy Ascension Day? There's no secret handshake. There's no greeting. um, and, um, And there's no traditions. You know, on Easter, what do you say? Christ is risen. You respond... What do you say at Ascension Day? We don't have anything. All that to say is you could walk away with the impression that the Ascension of Jesus is really not that important in comparison to to the other holidays. But that would be a mistake. I would argue that the Ascension is the key that unlocks the power of his birth, his death, and his resurrection. I would say, and I hope to argue, that his ascension is actually the key to understanding missions. So here's the question that I want to begin with. If the ascension is that important, 
how should it change your life? How should it change the way you think as a church? If the ascension, if its power were forged at the very center of your being, what difference does it make? In other words, Jesus died, Jesus um, rose from the grave, Jesus ascended in, uh, into heaven, his kingdom's being established. That's the theme, that's the story that we read in the book of Acts. So what? What difference does that make? Look at verse 11. It should comfort many of us uh, who don't, or may admit, I don't really understand the power of the, uh, the ascension. You're not alone. Why? Well, because the disciples didn't understand it either, apparently. Jesus disappears, an angel of the Lord, or an angel appear and asks his disciples, men of Galilee, why are you standing around? It's a rebuke. You know, it's kind of like that question you ask your five-year-old who's sitting on the couch surrounded by chocolate wrappers, chocolate all over the face, and you ask, what are you doing? You're not really asking, what are you doing, are you? It's a rebuke. You're not asking for an explanation. For the disciples of Jesus, the ascension meant immediately the following. He's gone. Uh, you know, his protection, his voice, his leadership wisdom, they're gone. It's like when you have friends, couples, people who have been in your congregation for years, and they're gone. Well, you're not going that far away. Athens, Georgia, is not that far away. And yet you grieve, don't you? Why? Because you're losing what you had, the nearness to them is gone, even though they haven't gone that far away. You grieve the fact that you've had them. They've had a significant role in your life. They were pivotal at moments, but now they're gone. So in some ways, we ought to be able to sympathize with the disciples at this point. But I want you to notice this. That misunderstanding led to immobility. It led to inertia. It led to inaction. And I'd argue the same things happens to us if we fail to grasp the ascension. It will lead us to spiritual inertia, spiritual immobility, and apathy in our lives. Is that something you struggle with ever? Apathy? Look at the angel's answer. If you're grieving, disciples, you've failed to understand what this means. Do you not understand what's happening in this moment? In order to understand it, you need a new perspective. You need to look at things from a new perspective. The ascension is not the absence of Jesus. Rather, it's the intensified presence of Jesus. The ascension is not the loss of his leadership, protection, and presence. It's rather the magnification of all that. You come this morning sensing that your prayer life is a lot like the disciples. Seemingly, your prayers rise to heaven, but you look to heaven and, and there's no answer. There's no movement in faith, maybe no increase in love in your life, worship, adoration, and obedience to Christ. It, you're just not going, spiritually speaking, going nowhere. What could possibly breathe new life, new fire into our spiritual lives? I think Luke gives us an answer, the ascension. 
A proper understanding of the ascension. We need to understand its power. We need to understand its meaning and its consequences. This event, I would argue, gives us three pictures or perspectives of Jesus that if we truly understand them, it will change our lives. Three pictures that point to the power, the meaning, and the result of the ascension. Like a work of art, if we gaze at those three pictures long enough, it will change you. So three things I want us to look. Jesus, first of all, we have a picture here of Jesus, an ascended prophet. The first picture is of Jesus as an ascended prophet. Then we're going to look at priest and then king. So the first picture I, I think is here is Jesus as an ascended prophet. Now, whether you understand Jesus to be God or not, even the harshest of skeptics would, would, would find some of Jesus' teaching wise, helpful, and immensely practical, right? For the disciples of Jesus, he spoke with unusual and unique authority. He spoke truth. His teaching was empowering. We read in John chapter 8, verse 31, to the, uh, Jesus speaking to the Jews who had believed in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, if my words, if my teachings shape and determine how you think, how you act, if that's at the center of, your, of all the decisions that you make, it will actually free you up to live. My word does not enslave you, rather empowers you. My words, my laws, my commands are not joy-sucking, rather life-giving. The only other alternative is to be a slave of your own self-determination. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve, you remember? They decided to reject living under God's word. Living un and decided to live under their own authority. And the consequences which we now have seen for numerous millennia are catastrophic. A train is not free when it's not on the tracks. A fish is not free to live when it's really out of water. We are not built to be the product of our own self-will. We are truly free when we live under God's word. Back to the ascension. But Jesus is gone, right? How will Jesus continue to teach? How will his disciples or how are we to continue to live under Jesus' words when his words are heard no more? Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. See, Luke is writing to a man, probably a patron, named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him, but what we do know is that he was a skeptic who was open and tolerant. So Luke deals with the life and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. That's volume one. Now volume two, the book of Acts, deals with the life and the teachings of the church, right? Not exactly. Look at the text again. Look at what Luke says. In the first book, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Where's he going with this? What Luke is saying is, and now I'm going to deal with or show you what Jesus is still teaching and doing. What he is doing. The reader should be somewhat surprised at this point. 
Paul writes something very similar in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. He says this, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is reminding the Ephesians how they came to faith. Paul preached, and they believed. But what's interesting is in the original, it doesn't say when you heard about him. It says, you heard him. And even more clearly, we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached to you who were far off. What? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Paul's writing to the same people. Here's a Bible trivia quiz. When did Jesus ever go to Ephesus? Answer? Never. That we know of. How can Paul say that Jesus came and preached to them? That the Ephesians heard him. Translators insert about him or regarding him in order that it doesn't, frankly, sound so silly. They want to iron out what appears to be a difficult saying. In other words, surely that's not what Paul really meant. But that would, that would make no sense. But I think that's precisely the argument that Luke is making. That Paul was making. If you are a follower of Jesus, when you explain the gospel to someone, they are, they are hearing far more than just the vibration of your vocal cords leaving your mouth. They hear the voice of Jesus. Through you. You were a teacher. We are all teachers. We all have the same power Jesus did. That's not my idea. That actually comes from Paul and Jesus himself. Look at Acts chapter, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 6. The disciples of Jesus ask him, Lord, will, you, will it, you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Translation, when is this finally the time when you're going to drive out the evil Romans? Verse 8 you, and Jesus answers, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Do you understand what's going on here? I love the way one pastor puts it. They're asking, Jesus, will you? Finally. And Jesus answers, will you? Finally. That means the prophetic ministry of Jesus continues through you, through me. It's the means by which he's establishing his long-awaited kingdom. We are his witnesses. We are the voice of Jesus. When we preach, when we proclaim, when we explain the good news of Jesus, they don't just hear your voice or mine. They hear his. But there's more. Look at verses 4 and 5. The conversation suddenly shifts to John the Baptist. What is going on there? At another point in the New Testament, Jesus says there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. But even the least in the kingdom of, uh, of God is greater than John. What in the world can that possibly mean? If you're like me, you may be thinking, all right, all right, I'm out in myself. I'm the least. I'm the least in the kingdom. <laughs> Somebody needs to be the least, right? And I'm it. I mean, sometimes my readiness to tell people about Jesus is laughable. And I say that as a pastor, as a missionary, as a professional Christian, as some people call me. But even that person that is so reluctant, even that one that has seemingly no position of influence, even that one is greater than John the Baptist. Huh. Why? 
Here's my answer. Because we know something, we understand something that not even John the Baptist understood. Really? Yeah. We understand something better than he did, and it will impact the message that we bring. What is that? Simply this. Jesus is the center of all Scripture. All Scripture points to him. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking with two disciples after his death and after his resurrection. His identity is hid from them, and Luke reports that he opened their eyes so that they could see that all Scripture pointed to what he would do. And at the end of Luke chapter 24, Jesus meets with the rest of his disciples for the first time after his resurrection. And Luke reports that he showed them that all Scripture pointed to him. The law, the prophets, the writings, in other words, the entire Old Testament... And then Jesus spends 40 days, we read in our text, with them, explaining what? That all Scripture points to him. You see, John the Baptist only had an inkling of that. We have the much fuller and clearer picture of that. You see, up to this point, the disciples, many of the disciples read the Bible like many of us tend to do even now. What do I mean? We read the Bible, we read the stories of the Bible, and the temptation is to think, well, gosh, it's really about you and about me, right? So the story of David and Goliath, it's really about me, how I need to be like David and defeat all the Goliaths of my life. I need to have courage. But Jesus says, ah, 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 no, 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 no. You've misunderstood the text. It's not about you. It's about me. You misunderstand how you should read the Bible. Either the Bible is primarily about all that God has done for you or all the things that you need to do for God. But what Jesus would say is, no, no, I am the true David. I am the true Moses, the true prophet of Deuteronomy 18. I'm the true priest, the true king. It all points to me and what I'm going to do for you. When you understand that, When that begins to shape your message, you've received the prophetic ministry of Jesus. And that perspective radically changed the lives of the first disciples, and it will radically change yours. When you understand that you don't live, you don't live with the sense of all the things you need to do, all the things you fail to do. Rather, you live. You have a joy that comes from a life of thanks, boldness, and peace for all that has been done for you. It frees you. It empowers you to tell others about the freedom that you have in Christ. One last comment on this point, and I promise the other two are a little shorter. But one thing we shouldn't miss. The disciples should have understood this prophetic perspective. Why? Because this, is, this isn't the first time an ascension's happened in Scripture. Do you remember when? 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah, a prophet in the Old Testament, prays shortly before he ascends to heaven that God would empower his prophetic successor. In other words, similarly, the ascension of Jesus is the empowerment of all his prophetic successors, you and me, his church. That's picture one we need to hold in our minds to understand the power of the ascension. Secondly, Jesus, the ascended priest. In verse 9, we read, And when he had said these things, 
As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. You know, my first thought, what happened next? (laughs) What's the thing that happened next, right after that moment? What does Jesus do after he's taken up by a cloud or disappears out of their sight? Well, you know what? The writer of Hebrews gives us a glimpse. He gives us a divine perspective of the ascension. In Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus ascends into the presence of God. Why? In order that he can intercede for us. I read now Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in the heaven itself, now to appear before God on our behalf. Jesus is standing at the, in the presence of God right now as our advocate, as our priest. All right, what does that mean? How should that change the way we live right now? I think it should change our lives the way it, should change, it changed the life of Stephen. Stephen glimpsed Jesus after the ascension in Acts chapter 7 as he was being stoned. How could he possibly deal with not just harsh conditions, but how could he deal with conditions that would ultimately lead to his death with such grace and peace? How could he deal with the injustice of it all? Answer, he looked up. Acts chapter, he looked towards heaven and he saw the majesty of God. Acts chapter 7 verse 55 Stephen looked to heaven, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw the ascended Jesus and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they stoned him. But as they were throwing stones to crush his body, this is what he prayed. And I can almost guarantee this would not be the thing I'd be praying at that moment. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Unbelievable. We shouldn't lose the significance of this story. The scene is deeply moving. The setting is actually a courtroom on two different levels. So the Son of Man, the kingly title for Jesus, is standing at the right hand of God's throne, a divine courtroom. And normally, the judge would sit in the middle of a table, and the defense lawyer would sit to his right. But what you notice here in the text is this, that Jesus is not sitting, is he? He's standing. It's a position that demonstrates Jesus' readiness to act now. Jesus stands and he throws open the curtains of heaven in order that Stephen can see who his true lawyer is, his true advocate, his true priest. Jesus wants Stephen to look at him He's saying, look at me, Stephen. Although you you are being judged by a kangaroo court down there, here in this divine courtroom, you are innocent and righteous. You are vindicated. All right? What difference does that make? When you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you stand righteous in heaven, You can be murdered on earth. When the highest 
court of the universe declares you righteous and innocent, it really doesn't matter what any other court says about you, does it? Let me apply this a bit more personally. How strong is your identity connected to your wife, your friends, your parents, your boss, and all they say about you? How strongly does their judgment shape, the, uh, shape your self-worth? A recent study of Gen Zers, those between the ages of 4 to 24, found that the, their identity is most closely tied to social media. Are you aware of that, parents? It is the, one of the first generations for whom the influence of parents is secondary to social media. As a user of social media, here's how it works. My kids tell me I'm a little you know, outdated in all this, but I've had this explained to me. But as a user of social media, you need a certain amount of followers. Their acceptance of your post and profile is important to you. So the result, you have friends and followers who are, notice this, at the same time, your competitors. Is my profile better than theirs? Do I have as many followers as they do? Do they click on mine as much as, you know, and, and so forth? It's a vicious circle. So you need followers to feel accepted, but at the same time, they're your competitors. They're your judges. How do you get out of that vicious cycle? One solution is to say, well, gosh, it really doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. What's truly important is what you think of yourself. In other words, it doesn't matter what the standards of others are. What really counts is your own standards. And if you struggle with low self-esteem, then just keep telling yourself how wonderful you are. Just remind yourself of all the wonderful things you've done. Stephen, and Paul would plead with you this morning, no, stop. I find it fascinating that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You could easily say, Paul, Paul, sit down. We need to have a talk. Um, you really lack self-esteem. What Paul and Stephen are saying is this. There is something far, far more important than the courtroom of others' opinion of you. There's something far more important than the court of your own opinion. Both of those are just simply traps. We are not created in order to satisfy the standards of any culture, any friends, any relatives. We are never we were never created to satisfy our own standards, to measure up in our own standards. The only way actually you will measure up to your own standards is to keep them really low. <laughs> Let me explain it this way. Every day, Every day, you walk into a courtroom. Every morning, you wake up, you walk into a courtroom. Every day, we seek an ultimate judgment about our value and worth. What do I mean? Well, as a child, we desperately long to prove to our parents, we're a good kid, really. We want to hear that our parents are proud of us. As a student, you want to prove that you can get good grades. You want to hear from your professors, man, you know, you're really intelligent. You're going places in life, right? Well, then you perhaps marry, and you want to prove that you're a good lover. You want to hear, you know, I just couldn't imagine being married to a better person than you. It's only been 10, but I long for 50 more, right? 
And then you have kids and you long to be a good father and mother. You live for the days when your children look at you and say, Mom, Dad, your wisdom is unsearchable. Your paths were searching out. And then you develop a career. And for the most part, we all long to just accomplish something, right? And then comes the phase where your salary rises and certain body parts sink. And mentally, you're all there, but your body is slowing down. You look in the mirror and you just long to hear, you're beautiful, don't you? Every day, in every phase of life, you walk into a courtroom and every day there is a prosecutor and, uh, and a lawyer. There are some days when I have the feeling that the prosecutor is winning in my life, pointing out all the failures, all the blemishes, all the wrongs. And then there are other days when my defense lawyer seems to be win winning, and Paul and Stephen would say, Stop. Stop. Let your weary heart and hands drop and listen. The only way out of that hamster wheel is to realize this. The case brought against you is closed. The process is finished. The judgment has been rendered forever. The ultimate judgment has already been spoken over your life. Why? Because in that moment, in that moment when you entrust your life to Jesus, a number of things happen simultaneously and immediately. Jesus' perfect life in righteousness is credited to you in full. You stand immediately righteous by his side. In him. You are forgiven, but more than that, you, he grants you all the rights and privileges of being his own son and daughter. You are immediately found worthy in him. You are valued in him. You are no longer a slave to your own standards or the standards of anyone else. You don't have to prove yourself to him. In that moment, he declares once and for all, you are my Beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. That is the only word spoken in the only courtroom that really counts. So you see, at this point, Christianity is utterly unique in comparison to every single religion on the face of the planet. In Hinduism, atheism, Buddhism, you do certain things, you live a certain way to earn a certain judgment. But in Christianity, you receive the judgment before you do anything. And it changes your life. In Christianity, you receive that judgment first. Paul actually says, or where does Paul say that the judgment, the court case has been closed? Look at Romans chapter 1. What Paul is arguing in Romans chapter 1 is this. Because Jesus went to court for him, the case is closed. Because Jesus was judged for him. The Bible reminds us that Jesus went into that courtroom as a lamb before those who would slaughter him, Jesus was mocked, spit upon, persecuted, whipped. Why? Why would Jesus do all that? In order that he could stand as our priest, our advocate before the throne of God. He took the judgment which our sins truly deserved in order that we would never have to stand in that courtroom. So where do you get your self-image? From a mirror? From others, Jesus would say, like he did to Stephen, Stephen, look at me. 
Look at my face. You are far more worth to me than all the precious stones on the face of this planet. That's the gospel. Are you tired of waking up every day trying to be a better person? Are you tired of beating yourself up or getting beat up by the opinion of someone else? Jesus says, I'm your priest. I'm your advocate. And when you have that perspective, it truly changes your life. Lastly, Jesus is the ascended prophet, the ascended priest, and then the ascended king. There's another perspective of Jesus ascending and being at the right hand of God the Father. And we get this from Ephesians chapter 1. After Jesus died, Paul writes, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. He put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. To sit at the right hand of the king was like being the prime minister. He's the person who possesses the power to set things in motion, to get things done. The point is, Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things right now. But not only that, when you read passages like Romans 8.28, it reminds us he's not just ruling in general, he's ruling for you. Paul writes, because Jesus has gone to heaven, we know that all things work for the good of those who are loved by him and called according to his purpose. Let me illustrate how that changes you. Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is, uh, is praying in a small town small, called Dothan. Joseph is about to be sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And what does he do? He prays, God, help me. And God does nothing. And he's sold as a slave. 2 Kings chapter 6, Dothan is again at the center of Israel's history. And Dothan's surrounded by enemies. The destruction seems imminent of this city and uh, in in inevitable. Elijah prays. And what does God do? <laughs> he sends chariots of fire in order to repel the Assyrians. Boy, I'd like to have that in my prayer life happen. <laughs> but think about it. Two prayers, same place, two different results. In the second, God sends chariots of fire. But in the first, he appears to do nothing at all. But you see, we know the rest of the story. We actually have a divine perspective of those events. God was not absent. He was actually quite active. One door after another opens for Joseph in Egypt, and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And then he says to his brothers, without an ounce of bitterness, he says to them years later when he meets them, do not fear. I am in the place. Am I not in the place that God has appointed me? You intended all this for evil, but God intended for good. He intended it so that I'm in a position to be able to save the lives of countless thousands. In other words, if Jesus was convinced that all things work together, or if Joseph was convinced that all things work together for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose, then how much more so should we? The ascension of Jesus is actually the enthronement of Jesus. When Jesus disappeared, he was welcomed into the throne room as a king over all things. Paul was a dictator. Cyprian, the church father, was a magician. Augustine, a sex addict. John Newton, a slave trader. But you see, when the king lifts his scepter, 
Even the hardest of hearts are changed in an instant when he demonstrates his power. See, Jesus is not only a resurrected, but he's an ascended prophet, an ascended priest, an ascended king. And that reality changes everything. His power to speak, to forgive, to rule lies within us. He's granted us in order that we speak with boldness so that we serve with great sacrifice and we live in a way that we restore all things that are broken. When the ascension, when we understand the ascension, it drives us to the ends of the earth, earth with a message of hope. You see why the ascension is the key to missions? When we get it, it fills our lives with purpose and passion. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would now take your word and plant it deep within us. I pray for those of us who have spent many years walking by your side, but our eyes may not be opened, or maybe we're struggling with that apathy, and your beauty has faded. Would you use your word, your preached, your prayed, your spoken word to reinvigorate our faith? And I pray for those who may be here who have more questions than answers, that your word would begin to penetrate them. The voice of your servant would, be, would fade into the distance and they would hear yours. And they would understand that your love, your power, your majesty is unparalleled. And we ask this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.